This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday we honor here in Seattle instead of Columbus Day. And on this podcast, we're going to hear how Indigenous musicians are fusing their traditional culture into hip-hop, jazz, funk, and dance music. Kalina Lawrence of the Suquamish Tribe will talk about using the Lashootseed language in a hip-hop song of hers. I wouldn't say that my dream is to be a full-time musician. My dream is to make a song in my language. A Tribe Called Red will talk about making a song after a Native American woodcarver was shot and killed by a Seattle police officer. It was after he was seen carrying his carving knife on the streets of Seattle. We made that song out of frustration. And we'll hear how musician and glassblower Preston Singletary fuses his native Clinket culture into modern music and art. Both with my artwork and with my music, I try to bring that native culture alive in a new way. But first, we continue our series, Day Job. It's where we chat with musicians about what work they do outside of their band to be able to sustain their music. Today, Rachel Stevens introduces us to... Uh, I'm Hozoji Roseanne Matheson-Margolis. I play drums in the band Helmsley. I also work for the Puyallup Tribe as a independently contracted shellfish biology diver. <laughs> I don't think I said that. Scuba diving and playing a metal gig. Seemingly, these are worlds apart. But when Hazoji is on stage, she finds the similarity between the two pretty quickly. It's an extremely vulnerable place to be, to be in front of a group of strangers playing songs that you wrote of this extremely personal it's like standing naked in front of a group of people and having them be like oh your nipples are weird you know (laughs) or whatever (laughs) it's extremely extremely vulnerable and so there's moments where I feel like extra naked um when I'm up there and then those times are when I will think about being underwater because that place is so utterly different than up here, you know, like this weird, weird everyday life stuff that just utterly disappears when I am underwater. And Hazoji is underwater a lot because that's her day job. I dive, uh, I do bio dives for the Puyallup tribe, doing surveys of their gooey duck tracts, counting gooey ducks. Oh, you've never heard of gooey ducks? Well, um, gooey ducks are humongous, really hilarious-looking clams. Hilarious, because they are super phallic, reaching over three feet in length sometimes. They're also delicious, and valued at about $30 a pound. Before European settlers came here, it was one of the main sources of food for the people who originally lived here. So I'm a Puyallup tribal member. I work directly with the Puyallup tribe, and gooey duck has long been a very important food source for us. Harvesting gooey ducks used to be insanely labor-intensive because they can live up to three feet under the sand. You would have to dive deep down and dig and dig with your hands or a stick, dig this huge hole to get just one gooey duck. But this was kind of okay because they are so vital to the health of our waters. They're basically, they're little vacuum cleaners that keep our waters clean and healthy. But today... A lot of it is done by diving, where you dive underwater... You have a high-pressure water hose, basically, that you take and you shove into the sand next to the gooey duck, and you just blast the sand from around the base of the gooey duck and pop it out. It's a lot easier now to harvest gooey ducks, which puts our ecosystem in danger because they're so sought after. 
So it's Hazoji's job to make sure we're taking care of the Puget Sound. She's passionate about this job for many reasons. One reason being that she really cares about and relates to the gooey duck itself. Gooey duck are entirely sedentary. Once they have settled into their spot in the sand, they will never, ever move again. And they do that within, I just learned this recently, actually, in school, within um, about a month and a half of existence. The poeticness of a gooey duck staying sedentary its entire life. I mean, yes, of course, there's plenty of human beings. We all know human beings that me being one of them, I was born and raised in Tacoma. I don't foresee myself ever leaving Tacoma because I just it's the right spot for me. It feels good to me there. Hazoji loves Tacoma and the Puget Sound, but she also loves touring with Hamza Lee. So finding a job that worked with her music was difficult. Before becoming a diver, Hazoji had a quote-unquote long string of crappy jobs. That would mean that if tour came along and my boss was like, no, you can't leave, then I would just go anyway because I don't care, right? I'd just get another crappy job when I get home, which is fine for a while. But as you get older, it just becomes less sustainable. And so I did want a a more real job, but I was 100% unwilling to let any kind of jobby job get in the way of music. And now, as an independent contract diver, Soji says she makes great money. But that means she has to budget and manage her schedule around these dive opportunities. You know, that's the trade-off is like the freedom, but then you have to budget. You have to get really good at looking out for your money situation because it's definitely a feast or famine kind of industry. And so after living on the water her whole life, Hazoji jumped into gooey duck diving eight years ago. The first time that I ever went under, I just, it, there's so much more color and life to it than what you expect and what you see from the surface. And having been born and raised in Tacoma, I have, I think, an inherent appreciation for this weird combination of industry and natural beauty, because Tacoma's right on this port, so we're surrounded by cranes and ships and, you know, all sorts of, you know, big plumes of gross smoke. (laughs) Um, But then also, you know, state parks and beautiful fjords of super nutrient-rich bodies of water being fed by Mount Rainier, you know? So it's a really weird combination of things that I just have was born to love, I guess. That's true underwater here, too. You know, you'll be kicking around down there and you come across a toilet or a car or a pile of tires. So there'll be a toilet just covered in these beautiful matridium sea anemones, these bright orange trees, you know, and purple starfish and rock crabs and stuff like that. So it just, the the first time I ever went down, I was like, oh, this is extremely beautiful and very peaceful. It's not nearly as terrifying as my brain had built it up to be as a child swimming in this dark, murky water. That weird combination that Hazoji describes and says she was born to love, that gritty industry paired with natural beauty. I mean, that's kind of the perfect description of the music of Helms Ali. Helmsley is is weird music, so I don't know how to describe Helmsley's music um, other than it's rock based. It's melodic. 
melodic at times, it's rowdy and noisy and gross sounding at times, and it's a culmination of our three very, very different personalities <laughs> coming out um, through sound. So the three members of Helms Ali is Hanzoji on drums, guitarist Ben Vellerin, and bassist Dana James. And fans quickly pick up on the band's connection with the Puget Sound. Ben's style of guitar playing and the effects that he uses um, to create the sound that he has for Helmsley uh, just sound very watery to me. It sound there's lots of delay and reverb and clarity that, or a combination, I guess, of clarity and murkiness that to me just reminds me of being underwater. So well before this theme started to get really dominant in our band. I would think about being underwater just by hearing his riffs. Just the sound of him playing guitar makes me feel that similar feeling. There's a nautical theme that shows up almost everywhere for Helms Ali. Helms Ali is even what sailors are supposed to say when they're going under the sail. <laughs> um, we all three just really spend a lot of time on, in, around the salty seas of Puget Sound. So... It just it just keeps it just keeps coming out, and what's coming out is a lot of new music from this band, new videos, more tour dates. Helmsley has been together for more than twelve years, and they are still going at an impressive clip. It, none of us want it to be a full time career. All three of us have outside interests that are super important to us. Ben creates custom amplifiers and owns a bar in Fremont. Dana's in school right now for accounting and has a day job also in Fremont. And his OG is diving and working on her PhD in marine biology at the University of Washington. We all have good things outside of our band that help sustain our band. <laughs> Day jobs. Day jobs, yes. <laughs> I would just love for our band to continue on the path that we're on. We're just getting to a point where we are able to tour and come home with a little bit of money to pay bills. You know, we're 12 years deep and just getting to that point. And um, that feels really good to, you know, to know that we don't have to completely flip our lives upside down to continue pursuing music. That the music that we work really hard on all the time is being appreciated by people other than ourselves. <laughs> that feels awesome. So if we can just keep that rolling, I'm good, you know. Helmsley kicks off a new tour in November. They'll be in Seattle for a show on November 19th. Here's their song Interacted off their latest album, Noctiluca. You can go watch the video on YouTube if you want to see some very trippy ocean floor scenes. This episode was produced by Bree Ripley, Ryan Sparks, and myself, Rachel Stevens. For KEXP's Sound and Vision. This is Sound and Vision. For Indigenous Peoples Day on Monday, KEXP DJs only played music from Indigenous artists. 
KEXP's Gabriel Teodros hosted the afternoon show that day, and he brought sound and vision these next two stories you're about to hear. They're about how indigenous musicians are fusing their traditional culture into modern music. Kalina Lawrence may be the first person to ever record vocals on a hip-hop track in the Lashutzi language. Kalina says this song is called That translates to Lashutzi is alive. Lashutzi is a Coast Salish language. It's the language of the Duwamish and Sequamish people, as well as other nations around the Pacific Northwest. Hat slachel, Kalina Lawrence seeds da, Kalina Lawrence seeds da, soak wabs chud, soak wabs chud, disha huff chud, us joe ill chud, till all chud doof suck wub. Kalina grew up on the Port Madison Indian Reservation in Suquamish. It's on Puget Sound's Kitsap Peninsula near Bainbridge Island. She was part of the first class to go through Suquamish's tribal high school. She was able to learn Lashutzi during her time there. It's a language that was almost lost. In the 1990s, it was said that there were only 60 fluent speakers of Lashutzi alive. Kalina talks about the importance of preserving indigenous languages. It's the main tool of ethnocide and genocide is to attack the language of a specific landscape, of a specific people, right? And and you will talk to so many different indigenous peoples across this continent, across the world, right, that says that language belongs to the land, And because we say we are of the land, right, that we belong to the land, so we belong to a language. For a century, it was illegal in the United States for Native Americans to practice their religion or ceremonies. During that time, Native American children were taken from their families and sent to boarding schools. The boarding schools were set up with the mission to kill the Indian and save the man. They were taught how to act and speak like their colonizers. In many boarding schools, students were beaten if they were caught speaking their native language. There's still our loved ones and our ancestors who held on, right? They would have to go to boarding schools, only speak English in boarding schools. If otherwise, then said treatment would occur, Mm -hmm. but still whisper, right? Or still still talk at home with their parents and their grandparents. And um, Mm -hmm. that was preserved. So... So the only reason that I can even speak or understand or sing or create a song is because of those ancestors. Kalina says tribes are now using the written word, something that colonizers brought to the Americas to learn their languages again. We're using the tools of our colonizers for the betterment of not just our lifetime, but future generations. Kalina is the product of generations of resilience, and she's able to use that resilience in her music. But it's a big responsibility, Mm -hmm. and I feel like I've carried that with me. It's not the first time it's been done Mm -hmm. in terms of native language and hip hop. There's so many, so many dope artists who have done it and I've heard them and it's inspired me, right? Like Tall Paul. 
Nima show me sweet do cow with I'm I budget too young and this shit I'm bay is it's wild when me jit big it came to my KI mission I baby my dizzy win and Superman How you wanna hold and so many folks who have already done this with their languages and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not fluent by any means. I'm a lifelong student. Kalina says she consulted with elders to help translate this song. She also used the voices of Suquamish youth who are learning their language at a culture camp around the time she recorded them in this track. It was a communal process to make this song. I wouldn't say that, you know, my dream is to be a full-time musician. My dream is to make a song in my language that I can perform or just you know what I mean? Use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is that, like, here is maybe the first time in my life where I could say, like, I literally had a dream manifested into reality. Same. And, like, here I am. For the first time in the history of this city since it's been birthed, mm-hmm. a hip-hop song in, in Lashootseed, which belongs to this land, to this is going to be aired, you know? Yeah. And we're in 2019. There's a lot to be said, and that could be um, interpreted a lot of ways, but we're here and we're doing it, and I'm really, really blessed to be a part of it. That was Kalina Lawrence talking about her song, Us Halit T. Tulshootseed. Lashootseed is alive. For Sound and Vision, I'm Gabriel Teodros. Ask hate your love. Ask for love. 
This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Gabriel Teodros. I want to share an interview that I did with a tribe called Red when they played Capitol Hill Block Party over this past summer. A tribe called Red is known for fusing traditional indigenous music with electronic beats. This year, they've released a string of new singles after their most recent full-length album entitled We Are the Hallucination. them how they find the samples that they use in their tracks well i mean in the early years it was like digging just not in record stores it was digging online just to find songs that we could use that would work that had have you know open parts in them or but that evolved really quickly into working with a record label called tribal spirit that have a number of drums on it uh, most of the drums that we work with even to now are from that label, so Black Bear, Northern Voice, Chippewa Travelers, kind of are the, the main chunk of them that, that we've been using, uh, Eastern Eagle. And that now has evolved into us actually getting into the studio and collaborating with a couple of the drum groups. So like one of the reasons you see Black Bear's name so much is that before the production of The Hallucination, we got into the studio and actually worked with Black Bear. That was our first chance to actually work with a drum group uh, for, right from the recording up. Uh, and then uh, more recently, we got into the studio with Chippewa Travelers. I know y'all probably get criticism because anytime somebody does work inside of a, inside of a cultural context, there's people that say, "Oh, you didn't stay so true to the to the tradition." Like, what do you say to people that say "Tribe Called Red" is is breaking a tradition, or with any type of criticism that you might get from inside your own community? Like, how do you respond to that when it comes up? There's a constant balance that has to go on, you know, that we are pushing boundaries, not only, you know, as what people expect uh, indigenous people to be, but also what our, what our community expects us to be. Um, but when you're pushing those kind of boundaries, you have to push easy. You have to go lightly and you have to do it with as much respect as you possibly can. So we have a double responsibility. You know, we have a re constantly the responsibility to look at traditional protocols 
and to treat things with that respect, you know, and, and even if we're pushing the boundaries on those things a bit, we're doing it with the most respect that we can, you know, and we adhere to as much as we can. A Tribe Called Red also take the opportunity to make statements in their music. They first came on my radar in 2011 with a song called Woodcarver. It was written in honor of John T. Williams, who was Native American and a traditional woodcarver based here in Seattle. John T. Williams was so talented he could carve with one hand while walking. In fact, he was doing just that when a Seattle police officer shot and killed him in 2010. Williams was deaf in one ear. The police officer shot Williams four times just five seconds after asking him to put the knife down. No criminal charges were filed against the officer. Hey! 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 Put the knife down! Put the knife down! Put the knife down! Here's what A Tribe Called Red had to say about their song, Woodcarver. We've always looked at the fact that we use our culture and our music as a responsibility, that there's a responsibility that comes with that to talk about indigenous issues, to talk about injustices within the indigenous community. So when we heard, you know, when we heard about, um, about John T. Williams' murder, you know, it was one of those times where, okay, there's this, it's, it's on film. You know, like this is this is cold-blooded murder. Like there's no question, and the song actually came out after the verdict, right? And that it was we made that song out of frustration. We made that song to like, you know, to blow up what had happened and tell try to tell as many people as we could about about how wrong the the justice system was in this situation. Here's a tribe called Red Song Woodcarver. That's the song Woodcarver by A Tribe Called Red. The music video features police footage from that day. The video ends with these words. On August 20, 2010, a woodcarver named John T. Williams of the New Chalnuth Nation was shot four times and killed by Officer Ian Burke. Officer Burke has not been criminally charged for this murder. For Sound and Vision, I'm Gabriel Teodros. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. There's one more person I want to introduce you to today who is fusing his indigenous culture into his music and artwork. My name is Preston Singletary. I'm a local Clinkett glass artist and musician. Both with my artwork and with my music, I try to bring that native culture alive in a new way. His 10-member band is called Kuiks. It fuses Native American music with jazz and funk. The band used to feature the late Bernie Worrell. He played keys for Parliament Funkadelic. Worrell had Cherokee ancestors. 
And most of the band members in Kuwait are from indigenous clans from western Alaska. About six members are indigenous, so a lot of us are Tlingit and Haida. Singletary says Kuwait used to incorporate traditional tribal songs into their music, but now they're creating their own songs inspired by their indigenous culture. We did a little bit of uh, reinterpreting traditional melodies and songs in the very beginning, and then at the at which point we had to go back to the clan leaders and ask for permission to use them. So today we've taken uh, the step in just writing our own new compositions with using the indigenous language, using uh, Clinket Haida, and on the fourth album there will be some Yupik uh, voices on there too. We revel in the fact that you know, we have this group and it is so dynamic and it brings a new perspective to uh, indigenous music. Bringing new perspectives to indigenous culture is something Singletary does during his day job as a glassblower. Seattle has a rich history of glassblowers, Dale Chihuly being the most prominent. So, you know, growing up in the Seattle area, I grew up around glassblowers. And one of my best friends in high school is Dante Marioni, uh, whose father was, a, you know, one of the original pioneers of glass art in the, in the States here. So for me, it was very much of a day job, you know, because I didn't go to college. I went straight into glass blowing at age 19. Um, and so I started to attend the Pilchuck Glass School. I started to learn how artists work with glass, and I tried to um, figure out how to synthesize, you know, the traditional clinket designs into glass. And I did that through a stencil process and a carving process. Um, which basically allows me to, you know, carve into the thickness of the glass and make it look, you know, traditional. Think of those native designs you usually see carved into totem poles or staffs. Instead of carving into wood, he's carving into glass, and it looks pretty amazing. You know, I was still struggling, you know, struggling with my music, trying to, you know, make it as a musician and in complete denial. But then what happened to me was that... uh, the artwork led me to my ultimate success. And so I think for for the way that I think about it is that, um, you know, Native people have a defining historical connection to glass, and it came through trade beads. And uh, so for me, it's, it, it's a symbol of, of transformation, of change, and evolution with, you know, technology. And, you know, uh, one of my... Most important mentors, Joe David, would point out that, you know, the materials that we use uh, for our traditional arts is becoming uh, increasingly rare, you know, like the large totem, you know, cedar trees for totem poles and what have you. And so the needs of the people will come through, uh, you know, to keep the stories and symbols alive will come through new mediums. I mean, I think you find that, that Native people are navigating into new materials and declaring, you know, who we are and what we do. That was Preston Singletary. You can see his art and his band Kuwik's perform at the Pratt Fine Arts Center in Seattle on Friday. 
You can also find his artwork at the Seattle Art Museum and Seattle's Traver Gallery. His work will also be featured at the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian next year in Washington, D.C. This is Sound and Vision. So last week on the broadcast version of the show, we asked listeners for ideas for what we should be asking for this week's listener question. We heard back from Thomas Kafkis, and he asked, what show do you most regret missing? So my name is Ann Story. I'm from Sheridan, Wyoming, and this is the story of uh, a show that I regret missing. I was in college at Western Washington University in Bellingham. I had a roommate who was in a local band, and they had some friends that were in another band, This was about 2003. I got invited for a small show and a party over at their house with Death Cab for Cutie. I hadn't really heard of them and I had schoolwork to do, so I skipped it. I'm a moron and I'm still kicking myself for that one. This is Scott Feldman. I live in Columbia City. I'm going to take you back to uh, November 2016, a really emotionally charged moment for us in the in the country, coming out of a presidential campaign, which I actually volunteered for out in Ohio. Uh, you know, honestly, disappointed with the results, and it was uh, it was impacting me. I was actually traveling during two months throughout the Midwest at that time, budgeting for my company. I'd volunteer on the weekends and, and work during the weekdays. And I uh, came back after my final budget session in Nashville and had actually missed the first Temple of the Dog show at the Paramount on that Sunday uh, because I was traveling, but they had announced the second show on Monday and I was all ready and amped to go to that show. But, you know, because of my boss, I ended up missing that show. It ended up being Chris Cornell's final show. He actually passed away six months later. You know, at the time, it would have been the greatest cure for the emotions that I was feeling at that time. And to know that in the end, I missed Chris Cornell's final show in Seattle, I'll forever regret that. Hi, my name is Richard LaRue, and I live in Seattle. Way back in 2008, David Berman was going on tour again. And if you know uh, David Berman, uh, he never toured. So I was really excited to get a chance to see him play with uh, Silver Jews. I lived in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. And at Ma- in Madison, I-, I worked as a video clerk. Uh, so I didn't make much money. I was a cyclist, so I rode around everywhere. I didn't have a car and the closest he was playing was in Minneapolis. So it seemed impossible for me to get there, uh, mostly because I was, I, was, I was super depressed and I couldn't figure out the train schedule or the bus schedule or everything else. I had moved to Madison basically to escape, uh, try to escape um, the grief over my mother's suicide in 2007. Um, so I wasn't in the best state of mind. And it went on as an event that, you know, I missed out. It didn't seem like he would ever tour again. And then he did. Uh, the Purple Mountains album came out and I bought tickets. I lived in Seattle and uh, I was home alone 
on Wednesday, August 7th, um, which is the day that my mom had killed herself. And I saw the news that David Berman had also committed suicide. And it was just devastating. And now these two events that did not seem connected are completely linked for me forever. Um, But I have the music now. And uh, one song that stands out to me um, is I Love Being My Mother's Son. When she was gone, I was overcome. The simple fact left me stunned. I wasn't done being my mother's son. Only now am I seeing that being done. Yeah. Thanks to everyone for sharing their story, especially Richard for being so vulnerable right there. Thanks to Thomas Kafkis for coming up with the idea for this week's listener question. And if you have an idea for the next listener question, please write us at soundandvision at kexp.org. So to wrap up the show today, we ask our final question, why does music matter? Here is what Preston Singletary had to say. You know, music to me is has has been it was my first passion my first love you know and i wanted to be a, a professional working musician but you know i found you know it was easier to become successful through my artwork but uh, for me music is something that's very constant in my life i mean i'm i'm listening to music all day long and uh you know, in the Clinket culture, you know, the music and the songs and the dances and the stories are all one thing. It's not, it's inseparable. And so for me, it's like uh, a complete life, you know, to have music, the ability to play music and sort of lift people up a little bit, entertain them. That was Sound and Vision. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really makes a big difference and helps other people know this podcast exists. And if you want to be extra generous, you can give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope to be in your ears next week.